Welcome to tape number 11 of Truth, Victory Over Error, or the True Principles of the Christian Religion by David Dixon. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. There is no copyright on this material, and we encourage you to reproduce it and pass it on to your friends. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. And now to our reading of Truth, Victory Over Air by David Dixon which we pray you find to be a great blessing and which we hope draws you near to the Lord Jesus Christ. Continuing our reading of Truth's Victory Over Air, Chapter 30 of Church Censures. Question 1. Hath the Lord Jesus as King and Head of His Church appointed therein a government in the hands of church officers distinct from the civil magistrate? Yes, Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, 1 Timothy 5, verse 17, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 12, Acts 20, verses 17 and 18, Hebrews 13, verse 7, 17 and 24, 1 Corinthians 12, 28, Matthew 28, verses 18, 19, and 20. Well then, do not the Erastians and others err who maintain that in the Holy Scripture there is no particular form of church government set down and appointed by Christ? Yes. By what reasons are they confuted? First, because the Lord Jesus Christ hath delivered to the ministers of his church as to his own delegates and ambassadors, and therefore according to his own laws, the whole power of governing the church which he himself received from the Father to be managed and put in execution in his own name and authority. John 20, verse 21, Matthew 28, verse 19, Acts 1, verse 2, Ephesians 4, verses 7, 8, and 11. Second, because all the substantials of church government under the New Testament, which either concern ministers, ordinances, censures, synods, councils and their power are proposed and set down in scripture, namely in the third chapter of the first epistle to Timothy, Acts 15 and 1 Corinthians 14 verses 26 and 40. Third, because the Lord Jesus Christ hath looked to the good of his church no less under the New Testament than under the Old. Therefore, since the church under the Old Testament had a most perfect form of government prescribed to it, and since there is as great a need or necessity of church order and discipline under the New Testament as was under the Old, it must follow that there is a pattern and form of church government no less set down and prescribed under the New Testament than was under the Old. Hebrews 3, verses 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. Hebrews 13, verse 8. 
1 Corinthians 5, 1 Timothy 5, 20, and 1 Timothy 1, verse 20. 4. The end of the church government is spiritual, namely the gaining of men's souls to Christ. But nothing that is merely of human authority can reach this end. Matthew 18, verses 15, 16, and 17. Fifth, because all the parts of church government are particularly set down in Scripture, as first those things which concern the key of doctrine as public prayer and giving of thanks, 1 Timothy 2, verse 12, 1 Corinthians 14, verses 14, 15, and 16, singing of Psalms, Ephesians 5, verses 18 and 19, Colossians 3, verse 16, public reading of the word, preaching and expounding the same, Acts 6, verse 4, Acts 8, verses 15 and 17, Acts 5, verse 21, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 14, Matthew 18, verses 19 and 20, 2 Timothy 4, verse 11, Hebrews 6, verse 1, Galatians 6, verse 6. Secondly, those parts likewise which contain, concern the, the key of discipline, namely the ordination of presbyters with the imposition of the hands of the presbytery, 1 Timothy 4, verse 14, and 1 Timothy 5, 22, Timothy 1, Titus 1, verse 5, Acts 14, verse 21 and 22. Thirdly, the authoritative giving of judgment and sentence concerning doctrine and that according to the word, Acts 15, verses 15, 24, and 28. Fourthly, admonition and public rebuking of those who have offended, Matthew 18, verses 15, 16, and 17, 1 Thessalonians 5, 14, 1 Timothy 5, verse 20. Fifthly, the excommunicating of those who are contumacious and ungodly and who are convicted of manifest crimes and scandals, Matthew 18, verse 17, Titus 3, verse 10, 1 Timothy 1, verse 20, 1 Corinthians 5, verses 2, 3, 4, and 5. Lastly, the receiving again into fellowship of the church, persons cast out by excommunication, having testified their repentance, first, excuse me, 2 Corinthians 2, verses 6, 7, 8, and 9. Do not the same Erastians err who make no distinction between the church power and the secular power? Yes. But by what reasons are they confuted? First, because Christ hath committed the keys of the kingdom of heaven to the officers of his church, which are governors distinct from the civil magistrate. Matthew 16, verses 18 and 19. Matthew 18, verses 19, John 20, verse 21, 22, and 23. Second, because church power and civil power differ specially, the church and the commonwealth are politics formally and essentially different. They are not, as such, power subordinate, at least in a right line, but coordinate. Acts 4, verses 19 and 20, Second Chronicles 26, verse 18. Next, God the Creator and Governor of the world is the efficient cause of the civil magistrate. Romans 13, verses 1, 2, and 4. But God Christ, our blessed Mediator and Lord of His Church, is the efficient 
of the church particularly and of its government. The matter of the civil government is a secular sword, but the matter of the church government are the keys of the kingdom of heaven. The matter of the civil government may be a senate, many people, the person of one king, of a child, a woman. But the matter of the church government is not of this kind. Hebrews 13, verse 22, 1 Timothy 3, verse 15, 1 Corinthians 14, verses 34 and 35. The matter of the civil government are men and women as members of the commonwealth without as well as within the church. But as Christians and members of the church, they are not such. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 13. The formal causes of both are distinct. The one inflicts punishment merely spiritual. The other inflicts punishments merely civil. Lastly, the end of this is the corporal and external good of a society. But the end of that is the spiritual good of the church and its edification. Matthew 14, verse 15, 1 Corinthians 5, 55, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 8. Do not likewise the Sicinians, Anabaptists, Quakers, many independents and others err, who maintain that the key of doctrine or the public preaching of the word is proper to any man furnished with suitable gifts, though not called and sent to that employment? Yes. By what reasons are they confuted? First, because no man can believe in Christ of whom he hath not heard, and how shall he hear without a preacher, and how shall he preach unless he be sent? Romans 10, verses 14 and 15. Second, because women may have suitable and competent gifts of preaching, and yet they are forbidden to speak in the church. 1 Timothy 2, verse 12. Third, because the scripture blames such as have run and yet have not been sent. Jeremiah 23, verses 21 and 32. Fourth, because no man taketh this honor to himself, that is, he ought no, not to take it, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. Hebrews 5, verse 4. Fifth, because the scripture mentions that God hath set apart certain peculiar ministers for the preaching of the word. Romans 1, 1, Ephesians 4, 11, and Titus 1, verse 3. Sixth, because no man can take the office of a civil magistrate or of a deacon of the church upon him unless he be called thereunto. Luke 12, 14, Acts 6, verse 5, 1 Timothy 3, verse 10. And therefore, no man ought to take upon him the public preaching of the word unless he be called thereunto likewise. Seventh, because he that taketh upon him this office without a call, he usurpeth authority in the church, seeing preaching is an act of authority. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 12. Eighth, because the titles which are given to the preachers of the gospel are names of offices. They are called the ambassadors of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20. Stewards of the word. Titus 1, 7. The men of God. 1 Timothy 6, verse 11 and angels, Revelation 2, verse 1. Ninth, because there is not one approved example in all the word of God for a gifted brother to preach without a call, and therefore, seeing it is not done in faith, it must be sin. Must every fellow that takes a lax in his tongue go up to the pulpit and ease himself? Tenth, 
because there are precepts and rules set down in Scripture for all the ages of the church to the end of the world, anent the calling of men to be ministers of the gospel. 1 Timothy 3, verses 2, 3, 6, and 7, and 1 Timothy 5, verses 21 and 22. Do not likewise the independents, Brownist, and Anabaptist heir who maintain that the right and power of governing the church belongs no less to the multitude and community of believers than to the officers of the church? Yes. By what reasons are they confuted? First, because the scripture expressly teaches that God has committed the government of his church and the care of his people to certain chosen persons and not to all and every one. Ephesians 4 verses 11, 12, and 13, 1 Corinthians 12, 28. Second, because if the power of the keys were given to believers in common, either they are given to them as believers or as they are gifted by God with gifts and qualifications above others for governing the church and chosen out of the rest for performing that office. If the last part of be affirmed, it follows that the power and right of the keys is committed not to a community of believers, but to some elect persons which we own and maintain, but the independents deny. If the first be asserted, then it follows first that the case of government governing the church is committed to women and children being believers, and so they must necessarily have the power of seeing as being eyes and watchmen to the church, the power of hearing as being the ears of the church, and the body of the church must be deformed because the whole body is an eye and the whole body is an ear. The whole many members are made one member. 1 Corinthians 12, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19. Second, it follows that the power of the keys is not only given to all, but to believers only. But it is evident by the example of Judas and other reprobates that many in Christ's name have preached who were not believers. Matthew 17, verses 22 and 23, Philippians 1, verses 16, 17, and 18. Third, because to whom Christ has given the power of governing the church, to them also he hath promised to give gifts and endowments largely for performing that office. John 20, verses 21, 22, and 23. 1 Corinthians 4, verses 6 and 7, Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. But to a community of believers, God has never promised a spirit for the ministry, nor gifts for that employment, nor did he ever bestow or confer any such endowment. Fourth, because Christ our mediator appointed ecclesiastical officers and church governors, before ever there was a formal church under the New Testament gathered and set up. Luke 9, verse 1, Luke 10, verses 1, 2, and 3, John 20, verses 21, 22, and 23, Matthew 28, verses 16 and 20. This was all done before his death, and before his ascension he did the like. Ephesians 4, verses 8, 11, and 12, Acts 2, verse 1, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 28. Now it is evident that there was no formal gathering together of a church before the feast of Pentecost, Acts 2. 
ecclesiastical ministers and officers were appointed for calling in and gathering together the mystical body of Christ vis-a-vis his members. Therefore it was needful that ministers baptizing ought to be before persons baptized, that gatherers of the church ought to be before persons gathered, that callers and inviters to Christ ought to be before persons called and invited. Fifth, this democracy or popular government cannot but bring in great confusion, whence many absurdities will follow, as the church of God should be an organic body that women who are forbidden to speak in the church must have the keys of the kingdom of heaven hanging at their belt, forsooth all must govern and none must be governed, all must attend the government of the church, all must be rendered uncapable for going about their particular callings, which God calls them to every day. Therefore, seeing this sort of government brings so much confusion with it, it is most probable that it is not of God who is a God of order and not of confusion. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 33. Question 2. Are church censures necessary for reclaiming and gaining of offending brethren, for deterring others from the like offenses, for purging out of that leaven which might infect the whole lump, for vindicating the honor of Christ and the holy profession of the gospel, and for preventing the wrath of God which might justly fall upon the church if they suffer his covenant and the seals thereof to be profaned by notorious and obstinate sinners? Yes, 1 Timothy 5, verse 20, 1 Timothy 1, 20, 1 Corinthians 11:27 to the end, and Jude, verse 23. Are the officers of the church for the better attaining of these ends to proceed by admonition by suspension from the Lord's table for a season, and by excommunication from the church according to the nature of the crime or scandalous offense and demerit of the person? Yes, 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 4, 5, and 13, Matthew 18, verse 17, Titus 3, verse 10. Well then, do not the Sicinians, Anabaptists, Quakers, and other sectaries err who deny that any church censures should be inflicted upon offenders? Yes. Do not likewise the Erastians err who maintain there should be no suspension from the Lord's table or excommunication from the church? Yes. By what reasons are they confuted? First, because the power of the keys is given to the ministers of the church, wherewith, not only by the preaching of the word, but also to church censures they open and shut the kingdom of heaven as will appear as will appear by comparing these places of scripture together Matthew 16 verse 19 Matthew 18 verse 17 second because he that offends publicly and after admonition persists pertinaciously in his sin should be esteemed as a publican and heathen Matthew 18 verse 17 Third, because the apostle says, If any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him. Note him, that is, either by excommunication or some other note of church censure. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 14. Fourth, because the apostolic church, being moved with the same reasons which now are, used the power of the keys and excluded from the sacrament men that were manifestly 
contumacious and wicked, 1 Corinthians 5, verses 2 and 3, and 1 Timothy 1, verse 20, 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 6 and 14. Fifth, because the apostle says, Them that sin vis-a-vis publicly rebuke before all, that others may also fear. 1 Timothy 5, verse 20. Sixth, consider the various ends of ecclesiastical censures as the reclaiming of offending brethren and the rest of them which are set down in the question. Chapter 31 of Synods and Councils Question 1. Ought there to be such assemblies for the government and further edification of the church as are called synods and councils? Yes. Acts 15, verses 2, 4, and 6. Are the decrees and determinations of councils and synods, if consonant to the word of God, to be received with reverence and submission, not only for their agreement with the word, but also for their power whereby they are made, as being an ordinance of God appointed thereunto in the word? Yes. Acts 15, verses 15, 19, 24, 27, 28, 29, 30, and 31. Acts 16, verse 4, Matthew 18, verse 17, 18, 19, and 20. Well then, do not the brownest and independent heir who maintain that every particular congregation or church hath in itself the full power of the keys without subordination or subjection to any classical or cynical meeting, and that presbyteries and synods have only a power of counseling, advising, and exhorting, but no power of jurisdiction to command or enjoin anything in the Lord to particular churches or congregations? Yes. By what reasons are they confused? First, because the apostolical church referred all weightier matters which did equally concern many congregations to the free suffrages and votes of the apostles, pastors, and select brethren, and not to the determination of any one particular church or congregation. Acts 15, verses 23, 24, and 25. Acts 6, verses 2 and 3. Second, because it is evident from Scripture that there have been many particular churches and congregations subordinate to one presbytery. For in the church of Jerusalem it is manifest that there were more than one congregation, first from the multitude of believers who were of a greater number than could be in one congregation, for hearing the word and communicating. Acts 2, verses 41 and 42. Acts 5, 14. Acts 6, verses 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. Acts 21, verse 20. Third, from the multitude of pastors and ministers whose pains and labors many churches required, Acts 1, verses 12, 13, 14, and 26, Acts 2, 1, 14, 37, 42, Acts 4, 31, 34, 35, 37, Acts 6, 2, Acts 8, 14. Fourth, from the diversity of tongues among the disciples at Jerusalem, which were given not only for the edification of those that were of that church, but also for signs and wonders to others who were without, and not of that church. Fifth, it is manifest from this that in those days they had no churches or meetings, houses built, but only met and convened in private houses and upper rooms. 
The same is also true of the church at Antioch, Ephesus, and Corinth, from the Acts of the Apostles and other places of Scripture. But all these congregations were ruled and governed by one college of pastors. First, because all of these particular congregations are called but one church, Acts 18, verse 22, Acts 11, verse 5. Second, because in that one church there were church presbyters who were called governors, not of any one particular congregation, but of the church, which was made up of many particular churches, Acts 20, verse 17, Acts 15, verses 2 and 3, Acts 18, 2 and 3. Third, because the presbyters did meet together for governing the church and performed acts of jurisdiction which concern the whole church in common. Acts 11.30 compared with Acts 4, verses 35 and 37, and chapter 21, 18, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, and chapter 13, 1, 2, and 3. Fourth, because there is a particular example of a synod which had the power of jurisdiction and which consisted and was made up of members out of diverse classical conventions. For when the question about circumcision and the keeping of Moses' law, which troubled the churches of Syria, Sicilia, Antioch, and Jerusalem, could not be determined in their own particular churches, the matter was referred to a synod of apostles and presbyters who met at Jerusalem which decided the controversy, appointed their decrees to be obligatory and binding on all these foresaid churches. Acts 15, chapter 16, verse 4, chapter 21, verse 25. Six, because the Jewish church, which was a politic body, had in every city synagogues subordinate to one supreme council or great synagogue, which was at Jerusalem. Deuteronomy 18, verse 8 and 12, 2 Chronicles 19, verses 8 and 11, Exodus 18, verse 22 and 26. Seeing therefore dangers and difficulties for preventing and healing of which the Lord hath appointed and set up in that church such a government may be as great, if not greater, in his church under the New Testament than was then, and seeing the Lord has no less consulted the good of his church now, than he did of old, it follows that there must be councils no less under the New Testament than under the Old, to which particular churches ought to be subordinate. First, from the light of nature and right reason, for the law of nature directs to a diversity of courts, namely, where there is any rule or government in a city or commonwealth, and orders the inferior courts to be subordinate to the superior the lesser to the greater, and appeals to be made from them to the greater. And in bodies both natural and politic, the parts ought to be subject to the whole for the good of both. Besides, there are and will be many, very many ecclesiastic affairs which will concern many congregations equally and alike, which cannot be determined by any one. Second, because the pastors and presbyters of particular congregations will stand in need each time of one another's help and assistance mutually. Third, because cases and difficulties may occur more entangled and intricate than can be settled and composed by the governors of any one congregation. Fourth, seeing particular congregations which lie nigh one to another ought to, 
to shun divisions and differences and to live in peace and unity. It follows manifestly that there ought to be synods or councils consisting of the presbyters of many particular congregations which ought to be subordinate to these councils and synods. Fifth, from Christ's own precept and command, tell the church, Matthew 18, verses 15, 16, and 17. For if our blessed Lord appointed that for a single brother's offense, he trespassing against God or his brother, for gaining of him and removing the scandal, he be brought before the church, it follows by consequence that the same course ought to be taken when any one particular congregation offends another and remains obstinate in their scandalous opinion and practice. For our blessed Lord has sufficiently prescribed a remedy in this place for removing of all scandals and offenses, whether of one brother against another or of one congregation against another. Nay, surely, since Christ hath consulted so much the conversion of one brother that hath sinned and gone astray, much more will he look to the good and conversion of a whole congregation. 6. Because any one single congregation, with one pastor only, hath not the power of ordination, an instance whereof cannot be given, either from precept or practice in all the New Testament. Nay, the ordination of ministers in the New Testament was always performed by a college of pastors associate together. Acts 6, 6, chapter 13, verses 1, 2, and 3, 1 Timothy 4, 14. 7. Because from this doctrine of the independence, these and like absurdities will follow. This ends side 1. Please turn the tape over and continue listening on side 2. First, that the prophets must be censured and judged by way of authority, not by other prophets, but by the multitude and vulgar of the congregation, which is contrary to 1 Corinthians 14, verse 32. Second, that all the councils in the time of the apostles which were convocated upon necessary occasions for matters which concern many churches alike were but during the time an extraordinary and so not obliging succeeding churches, though the occasions and causes which these councils were convocated then are and will be to the end of the world. Third, that private believers must be bishops of their own bishops, watchmen of their own watchmen. No communion or fellowship among ecclesiastical ministers. That single and particular churches, though they have defiled and puddled themselves with the most black and ugly heresies, with the most abominable faults and vices, yet are not liable to any ecclesiastic censure, but must be referred to the immediate judgment of Christ at the last day. Fourth, that a college of pastors and presbyters convened together from several congregations shall have no more power of the keys of the kingdom of heaven than any one particular man is able to look to the good of his brother. Fifth, that a pastor out of his own congregation hath no power to administer the sacraments or to preach the word or exercise any ministerial act, from which absurdities it follows evidently that this kind of church government labors under a manifest defect of the means of propagating the gospel. Six, that Christ hath in many visible bodies, as there are particular congregations, that men and women are to be accounted members only of a particular congregation and not of the church Catholic, 
and that those who are excommunicated are only cast out of a particular congregation, not out of the church universal. Question 2. May not the ministers of the church of themselves, by virtue of their office, meet in assemblies with other fit persons upon delegation from their churches when magistrates are open enemies to the Christian religion? Yes. Acts 15, verses 2, 4, 22, 23, 25. Well then, do not the Erastians err who maintain that the ministers of the gospel have no right or power in themselves or by virtue of their office to meet in a synod or council? Yes. By what reasons are they confuted? First, because the church of God in the primitive times had power in themselves to convocate their own assemblies for worship and government, not only without but against the consent of the civil magistrate, as is evident from the Acts of the Apostles and church histories. Second, though the power and right of meeting in church assemblies be visible in the Constitution and exercise, yet it is intrinsic and within the church as well as the power of preaching. Question 3. May magistrates lawfully call a synod of ministers and other fit persons to consult and advise with with matters of religion? Yes. Isaiah 49, verse 23, 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2, Matthew 2, verses 4 and 5, Proverbs 11, verse 14. Well then, do not the papists err who maintain that the civil magistrate hath no right or power to convocate synods or councils, but that it belongs to the bishop to convocate diocesan synods, to the metropolitan to convocate provincial synods, to the primate and patriarch to convocate national synods, to the pope only to convocate ecumenical and general synods? Yes. By, by what reasons are they confuted? First, because under the Old Testament, councils and synods were appointed and called by godly kings. First Kings 8, verse 1, 2 Kings 23, verse 1, 2 Chronicles 29, verse 4. Second, because it is the duty of the civil magistrate being born within the church to take care that peace and unity be preserved and kept in the church that the truth and word of God be entirely and soundly preached and obeyed, that blasphemies and heresies be kept under and suppressed, that all corruptions in worship and discipline be reformed, that all God's ordinances be lawfully established, administered, and preserved. And if it should happen that both church and state judicatories should make a universal defection from the purity of doctrine and worship received and acknowledged, it is the duty of a godly king by virtue of his regal power and authority to set about a work of reformation and to call and command all ranks of people to return to the true worship and service of God. Isaiah 49:23, Psalm 122, verse 7 and 8 and 9, Ezra 7, verses 23, 25, 26, 27, 28, Leviticus 24, verse 6, Deuteronomy 8, verse 5, 6, and 12, 1 Chronicles 8, verses 1 to 9, 2 Kings 23, verse 1 to 36. Third, from the example of Constantine that did convocate the first Nicene Council, from Theodosius, the elder that did call the first council of Constantinople, from Theodosius the Younger that did call the first council at Ephesus, from Martin, Martinaeus 
that did call the Calcian Council. Question four. May all synods and councils since the Apostles' Day err? Yes. And have not many actually erred? Yes. Well then, doth not the Popish Church err, who maintain that councils confirmed and solemnized by the Pope's authority cannot err, neither in explaining doctrines of faith, nor in delivering precepts and rules of manners common to the whole Church? Yes. By what reasons are they confuted? First, because all the priests, Levites, and prophets of the Jewish Church, who had the same promises which the Christian Church hath now under the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 10, 3 and 4, 2 Samuel 7, verse 16, Isaiah 49, verses 15 and 16, together with the high priest, have sometimes erred, as is clear from the following scriptures. Isaiah 41, verse 10 and 11, Jeremiah 6, verse 13, Jeremiah 14, verse 14, Hosea 6, verse 7, 8, 9, Micah 3, verse 9. The Lord's prophets that were immediately guided and inspired by him must be accepted. Second, because councils under the Old Testament lawfully called have sometimes erred. 2 Samuel 6, verse 2 and 3, Jeremiah 26, verses 7, 8 and 9, 1 Kings 22, verse 6, and under the New Testament, John 9, 35, John 11, 47, and 48, 52, Matthew 26, verse 57, 59, 65, and 66, Acts 4, verse 5, 6, 17, and 18. Third, because the Pope cannot show a proof of infallibility, Romans 3, verse 4. Fourth, because it is foretold in the New Testament that many pastors and teachers shall become false prophets and turn seducers, and the Antichrist shall sit in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Matthew 24, verses 11 and 24, Acts 10, verse 29 and 30, 2 Peter 2, verse 1 and 2, excuse me, 2 Peter 2, 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 14 fifth it is most evident that many councils approved and authorized by the Pope have most foully erred and that some have openly contradicted others chapter 32 of the state of men after death and the resurrection of the dead are the souls of the righteous being made perfect in holiness received into the highest heavens where they behold the face of God in light and glory Yes, Acts 3.21, Ephesians 4, verse 10. Well then, do not the Greeks, Arminians, Anabaptists, and Papists err, who maintain that the souls of the righteous are not presently after death admitted to enjoy happiness, which consists in seeing of God, but are put into some mansion, though it be not a heavenly one, yet a place above hell where they enjoy, even until the resurrection, some heavenly delight and recreation, without seeing of God? Yes. Do not likewise the Socinians err, who affirm that the souls of the righteous after death, until their resurrection, are extinguished and put out to speak so? Yes. By what reasons are they confuted? First, because the souls of the righteous after death are with Christ in heaven and enjoy that blessed vision. Philippians 1.23, Acts 3.21, Ephesians 4.10.
Second, because the spirits of just men after death return to God and are received by God. Ecclesiastes 12 verse 7, Acts 7 verse 59. Note that Solomon only speaketh of the people of God, yet some understand it of the souls both of believers and unbelievers, which are both sentenced by God as supreme judge immediately when a man dieth, every man to his place, the souls of believers to heaven, of unbelievers to hell. Third, because the saints departed together with the angels are said to sing perpetual praises and thanksgivings before his throne. Revelation 4, verse 6, 9, 10, and 11. Revelation 5, verses 8, 9, and 10. Revelation 7, verse 9, and 10. Fourth, because Christ promised that the thief should be with him in paradise that very same day he died. Luke 23, verse 43. Six, because the apostle says that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Second Corinthians 5, verses 1 and 2. Seven, because the same apostle says, therefore we are always confident, knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. Second Corinthians 5, verse 6 and 8. 8. Because the souls of the righteous after death are comforted and carried into Abraham's bosom. Luke 16, verse 12 and 25. Question 2. Are the souls of the wicked cast into hell, where they remain in torments and utter darkness, reserved to the judgment of the great day? Yes. Luke 16, verses 23 and 24. Acts 1, 25. Jude 6 and 7. Verse Peter 3.19 Well then, do not the Greeks and others err who maintain that the souls of the wicked are not adjudged to hell's torment till after the resurrection? Yes. Do not likewise the Sassinians err who maintain that the souls of the wicked shall never be tormented in hell? Yes. By what reasons are they confuted? First, because the particular judgment of every single man follows immediately his departure out of this life. Hebrews 9, verse 27. Second, because the soul of the rich glutton, after it departed from his body, was tormented in the flames of hell. Luke 16, verse 22 and 23. Third, because the souls of the wicked men departed go to their own place, that is, to hell. Acts 1, 25. Fourth, because the souls of wicked men are no less punished in hell than the apostate apostate angels, Jude 6 and 7. Fifth, because the spirits of those who in the time of Noah were disobedient are said to be in prison, 1 Peter 3 19. This prison is hell, Matthew 5, 26 and 27. Question 3. Does the scripture acknowledge any other place than heaven and hell for souls departed from their bodies? No. Well then, do not the papists err who besides these two places have devised other four. First, a place called Limbo, in which the faithful who died before Christ's passion had been shut up in a dark prison underground and being without torment and for the time wanting happiness, had been kept closed there until Christ's resurrection and ascension into heaven. Second, a place called Limbus Infants. Infantum in which infants which die without baptism suffer the eternal punishment not of sense but of loss.
third is a most pleasant meadow in which, as in a royal prison, the souls are in it, want happiness, yet suffer no punishment of sense, except what arises from the delay of happiness, but only of loss. This place seems to be the Elysian fields taken out of the sixth book of Virgil's Aeneid. The fourth place is called Purgatory, which is a middle place between heaven and hell, in which are the saints which have departed from this life without making satisfaction by temporal punishments for their venial sins, yet have gone thither for the guilt of their punishment, the fault whereof is pardoned in this life, that when they have satisfied and all are purged from every spot and blemish, they may be admitted to that blessed vision in seeing God forever. Do not, I say, the papist heir who besides heaven and hell maintain other four places for souls departed? Yes. By what reasons do you confute Limbus Patrum? First, because the souls of the faithful that departed before Christ's passion were made the inhabitants of the same heavenly Jerusalem with the angels. Hebrews 12, verses 22 and 23. Second, because the spirits and souls of the faithful that died before Christ suffered return to God who gave them. Ecclesiastes 3.21 Third, because the virtue of Christ's sacrifice did no less extend itself to believers under the Old Testament than to believers under the New. Revelation 13, verse 8. Fourth, from the example of Enoch and of Moses and Elias, which two, that would be Elijah, which two before the passion of Christ were seen upon the mount with him. Genesis 5, 24. 2 Kings 2, verse 14. Luke 9, verses 30 and 31. Hebrews 11, verse 5. By what reasons confute you limbus infantum first because the covenant belongs to the children of believers though not baptized in which covenant glory and life eternal are promised acts 2:39 second because christ said that the kingdom of heaven belonged to little children though not baptized matthew 19 verse 14 third because the infants of the israelites dying before the eighth day were not shut up in limbus infantum as the adversaries themselves confessed but the nature and essence of baptism under the new testament and the nature and essence of circumcision under the old are the same colossians 2 verses 11 and 12 fourth all the arguments which are brought against the absolute necessity of baptism do clearly overturn this fiction of limbus infantum Thirdly, there is no such place as a most pleasant meadow in which, as a senator in prison, the souls that are in it want felicity, yet suffer no punishment of sense. This was made evident in the first question. Lastly, there is no such place as purgatory. First, because there is no such thing as venial sin, as it was explained by the Popish Church, upon which false foundation is built this fancy of purgatory. Rome, Romans 6, verse 23. Second, because temporal punishments do not extend themselves beyond this life. Romans 8, verse 18. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 17 and 18. 1 Peter 5, verse 10. For in this life only the godly receive their evil things, as the wicked receive their good things. Luke 16, verse 25. Third, because after the fault is pardoned, there remains no punishment to be undergone. Ezekiel 18, verse 22, 
Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2, Micah 7, verse 19, Romans 8, verse 1 and 33. Fourth, because the thief upon the cross that was converted did not suffer afterwards any punishment in purgatory. Luke 23, verse 43. Neither could his death and confession upon the cross be accounted a perfect satisfaction, as the adversaries affirm, because he did acknowledge he had received the due reward of his deeds. Luke 22, verse 43. He that suffers as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer, his punishment cannot be accounted a satisfaction. 1 Peter 4, verse 15. Fifth, because they that die in the Lord rest from their labors. Revelation 14, verse 13. Sixth, because Christ's satisfaction for the sins of believers is most full, complete, and perfect, and doth not need our imperfect satisfactions, whether for the fault or for the punishment. Isaiah 53, Titus 2:14, 1 John 1:7, Hebrews 10:14, Colossians 1:20, 20, 21, and 22. Neither by our sufferings in purgatory is Christ's satisfaction applied to us. First, because our sufferings there cannot be an instrument for applying Christ's merits to us. For on God's part we have the word, sacraments, and the spirit as means for applying his merits to us. On our part we have faith. Was it ever heard of in the word of God that the Lord made use of exquisite torments for applying his grace? To apply mercy by the executing of justice? Is forgiving of debt applied by exacting the debt? Shall pardon be applied by the punishing of us? Question 4. Will such as are found alive at the last day not die but be changed? Yes. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 17. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 and 52. Well then, do not the papists err who maintain that such as are found alive at the last day shall die? Yes. By what reasons are they confuted? First, because Christ is ordained of God to be judge of quick and the dead which distinction would be made needless if all truly died, Acts 10.42. Second, because the apostle says, as was cited, we shall not all sleep but be changed, which place of scripture is not to be read, we shall all therefore sleep, as the papists say, putting in the Greek particle, therefore for not, because this illative particle cannot agree sufficiently with the apostle's preface, Behold, I show you a mystery. This mystery is not death itself, but a change in place of death, which is a great mystery indeed. Third, as the resurrection of many of the bodies of the saints was a preamble of the great resurrection of our bodies. Matthew 27, verse 52. So the translation of Enoch, that he might not see death, seems to be a preamble of this change in place of death. Hebrews 11, verse 9. Question 5. Shall the dead be raised up with the same bodies and none other, although with different qualities, which shall be united again to their souls forever? Yes. Job 19, 26 and 27. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 42, 43 and 44. Well then, do not the Sicinians, Arminians, Anabaptists, Photonians, and Marcionites err who maintain that the same individual body is not raised up, which we carried about with us here and laid down in the dust, 
but another body made up of air or of some matter more subtle than air, altogether void of flesh and blood, made anew by Christ? Yes. Do not likewise many of the Quakers err, who maintain also that the same individual body is not raised up again, but that there is a change thereof in substance as well as in quality? Yes. By what reasons are they confuted? First, because it is evident from Scripture, Philippians 3.21, that there shall be a transforming of those vile bodies at the resurrection to be fashioned after the glorious body of Christ, and so not the forming and making of a new one, which is hard to conceive, if the same individual body should not be raised. And if this change be here spoken of, be as well in substance as in quality. Second, because the Apostle says, He that raiseth up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies, and therefore not bodies made up of air, by a spirit that dwelleth in you. Romans 8, verse 11. Third, the same Apostle says, For this corruption must put on incorruption, and this mortality must put on immortality. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 53. Fourth, because the justice of God requires that the same individual bodies shall receive rewards or punishments which have done good or evil while life remained. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, Romans 2, 6, Ephesians 4, 8. Fifth, because the body of Christ, who is the efficient cause of our resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, 4, 12, 13, and 16, rose again that same individual body, Luke 24, verse 39, 40. Question 6. Shall the bodies of the unjust by the power of Christ be raised to dishonor? Yes. Acts 24, verse 15, John 5, 28 and 29, Philippians 3, 21. Well then, do not the Sassinians err who maintain there shall be no resurrection of the just, excuse me, of the unjust? Yes. By what reasons are they confuted? First, because the Apostle says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that every man may receive the things done in the body. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. Second, because the hour cometh in which all that are in the graves, in their graves, shall hear his voice and shall come forth, that they that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. John 5:28 and 29. Third, because the apostle says, being accused by Tertullius, there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. Acts 24, verse 15. Fourth, because according to Enoch's prophecy, the Lord cometh with ten thousand of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that they are ungodly among them. Jude 14 and 15. Fifth, because many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Daniel 12, verse 2. This ends tape number 11 of Truth, Victory Over Error by David Dixon. Please go to the next tape in the series and continue listening. Thank you. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources as well as SWRB's complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts is on the web at www.swrb.com. 
We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. This book, Truth, Victory Over Air by David Dixon, is also available from Stillwater's Revival Books in softcover format at a discount in our A to Z author listings. And please don't forget to look over the 62 CDs that make up our Reformation and Puritan Bookshelf CD sets if you visit our website at swrb.com as these CDs are a great way to build a major reform library at a fraction of the cost of the printed book.